hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm just back from the Clay Clark Reawaken America experience. I was in North Las Vegas, packed crowd, very hot tent. And uh, check out my Substack, Courageous Discourse. I describe why the Clay Clark uh, Reawaken America tour has faced so much adversity across the country. But I want you to hear my segment on the tour where I break the news about a very exciting publication concerning base spike detoxification. This is an approach used with over-the-counter supplements that can help people through multiple episodes of COVID-19, multiple vaccines, and they have lingering long COVID or post-acute sequelae symptoms. It's called base spike detoxification. Natokinase, 2,000 units twice a day. Bromelain, 500 milligrams a day and curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day. Let's listen to Reawaken America Tour. And this is followed by my long version interview with Dr. Roshan Killian and Dr. And Mr. Paul Slansky about her case against the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada. Our Canadian viewers are going to hear this. American doctors are going to want to hear this as well. Wow, is it getting really difficult up in Canada. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. So yesterday was a historic day as the very first detoxification protocol was published in the U.S. medical literature that gives people a chance to take uh, this whole issue into their own hands and use natural substances to begin to help the body clear this very a uh, uh, dangerous protein from its cells and tissues, and it involves three natural substances that are available over the counter at any type of uh, online retailer or at a natural food uh, a store or pharmacy. And they are natokinase, which is an enzyme that's derived from the fermentation of soy, Bromelain, which is a set of enzymes derived from the, the stems of pineapple. By the way, bromelain is a U.S. FDA-approved drug as a, a, deep, a topical treatment for wounds. And then the third is curcumin, derived from turmeric. The doses of natokinase are 2,000 units twice a day, bromelain 500 milligrams a day, and curcumin 500 milligrams three times a day. The duration in this publication, and I'm the first author, so I'm the one to bring this forward is at least three months. I think for people who have taken multiple shots, 12 months or more. Now the good news is that patients under my observation, and right now we have no prospective double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials to confirm this, but it's my clinical observation that patients indeed are getting better on this approach. That the numbness and the tingling, the heart racing, the erratic nature of various movement disorders, headache, ringing in the ears, 
loss of sense of taste and smell, all of that seems to recover on the detoxification protocol. I can't make any therapeutic claims, again, because these large trials haven't been done. Having said that, there are no large randomized trials even planned. I've checked clinicaltrials.gov, and these are not even planned. The Biden administration and HHS has spent a billion dollars researching long COVID, a billion dollars, zero dollars researching vaccine injuries. And despite all this investment, not a single long COVID protocol or new drug has been brought forward for individuals. It's been two and a half years into the vaccine campaign, and I can tell you as a clinical doctor, I made the decision based on my research and now my publication that we're gonna take matters into our own hands. We can manage these over-the-counter supplements. We have to be diligent, and there are side effects because this is a blood thinning regimen. These supplements are forms of blood thinners, so there can be bleeding and easy bruising. We have to be cautious about that. We do use them in addition to conventional blood thinners. Now, fortunately, the Japanese have led the way with natokinase. They've been using this. They've been eating natto for over a 1,000 years for its cardiovascular benefits, and they've been using a supplement now for the last two decades. So for all of these, we have a tremendous safety literature that we don't have, obviously, with the vaccines. And we can stop these at any time if there's a complication. But this is called base spike detoxification. Other things can be added, but this, this triple base detoxification, again, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin, must be taken, I think, for the majority of people who have had multiple rounds of COVID, have long COVID syndrome, or they've taken the vaccines, and now they're in the very, very uncomfortable position of wondering, are they the next one who's gonna have a cardiac arrest? Are they the next one who's gonna have a blood clot? And boy, have we seen public figure after public figure, athlete after athlete, develop problems. And those are the public figures. Can you imagine how many average people out there who are developing problems suddenly dying and no one ever mentions it it's a silent death that's occurring out there and it's occurring in large numbers mortality is up in every single population across the globe record mortality of every type the question on the table is the next person who dies unexpectedly with no antecedent disease, a complete surprise to the patient's family. I can tell you that I have now published the largest autopsy study ever in that circumstance where someone dies and they undergo an autopsy. And the answer is 73.9% of the time, it's directly due to the vaccine if they've taken it. The next athlete who has a cardiac arrest, the next actor or actress that has a stroke, or the next loved one that suddenly develops a heart attack or a cardiac problem out of the blue, it is likely due to the vaccine. And therefore, it's potentially preventable if we 
employ this detoxification program. I recognize it's empiric. I recognize we don't have the full strength of randomized trials, but we don't have time because pe people are losing their lives. We are approaching an inflection point where more people will have died of the vaccine than they will have of COVID-19. Remember former President Trump said, let's not make the cure worse than the disease. I can tell you as a doctor watching this now for three and a half years, being as active as I can in practice and research and as a public figure, the cure is worse than the disease. It is worse than the disease. The wellness companies offering the Signature Series Spike Support Formula. The wellness company supports this formula because it's designed to remove spike protein from the body in its design, in terms of its mechanism of action. The accumulation of spike protein occurs because of repeated COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 illness. The spike protein stays in the body a long time, causes heart, brain, body tissue damage, as well as blood clotting. The spike support formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. It includes natokinase, the principal ingredient, 2,000 fibrinolytic units or 100 milligrams. Those are uh, equal in terms of uh, conversion. Selenium, 75 micrograms. Black sativa extract. 500 milligrams, Irish sea moss powder, 500 milligrams, green tea extract, 150 milligrams, and dandelion extract, 50 milligrams. Why the other ingredients? The other ingredients are designed to help block the spike protein's effect on tissues, help tissues recover and repair. It's the best we have now when patients are in need at this point in time, we can't make broad therapeutic claims regarding disease states, but we can tell you that this is reasonable in terms of supporting the body and helping the body clear spike protein and allowing your pathway back to better health. So go to twc.health and check out the spike support formula. You can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and I'm your host of America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, and Courageous Discourse Substack. I have two special guests today. We have a serious topic to talk about, and that has to deal with medical censorship and professional reprisal. Dr. Uh, Rujane Killian, who is a physician in Canada, and Mr. Paul Slansky, who's her attorney. And here's an opportunity to get the issues out on the table. So many have heard about this case and so many more, particularly in Canada, Australia, New Zealand. I think those are the top countries for which we see uh, we see uh, violations of, of human rights, 
but specifically applied to healthcare personnel and most importantly, doctors who are top of the chain. Dr. Killian, Mr. Slansky, welcome to Courageous Discourse. Thank you, Dr. Thank McCullough. Thanks for having us. Okay, Dr. Killian, why don't you lay out the, the issues? What happened uh, concisely? Um, Dr. McCullough, I will try to make it as short as possible because it's been okay. going on for two years now, so I will try to make it concise. But basically, the summary of it, I was an emergency, emergency room physician in Canada, Ontario, Owen Sound, specifically during the whole um, frontline process and I resigned from my job on the 23rd of August 2021 because of the vaccine mandates that came into play in the hospital setting. I actually resigned on a publicly recorded town hall meeting with our CEO and that kind of went went viral at that process. But after that, I stepped into my role as a family physician because I trained in South Africa. So we've got um, we've got training of both. So I stepped into that role and I started seeing patients, um, assessing them for comprehensive COVID care. Comprehensive COVID care included ivermectin, um, hydroxychloroquine, exemptions, whatever was needed in that process. During that, um, one of the exemptions that I provided was handed into an employer and that employer saw it fit to take on the role of policeman and handed in that exemption to the college. That started an investigation where the college let me know that they did receive an exemption. There was no patient complaint. And that's the part that is really important for people to know. There was no patient complaint, but they asked me to give them a list of all of my patients that I either assessed for ivermectin, for exemptions, hydroxychloroquine, or even mask and testing exemptions. I cordially replied to say I would love to provide them with the information, but none of my patients gave me the permission to share their medical charts because it is sacred under the privacy and confidentiality of the patient and physician relationship, like it's always been. Nothing's changed or should have changed. Mm -hmm. And they basically said, well, if you're not going to comply with our orders, we are going to take you to court under Section 87. And that process was started in December of 2021. During that process, they ended up suspending my license basically in October of that year to say um, in protection of patients because I shouldn't be able to assess them for comprehensive COVID care. So I've been with temporarily suspended license for two years. And since then, we have been in court. And that is where Paul can tell you more. Well, Paul, let me ask you, was that first court, was it really a court of law or was it a proceeding within uh the college. I assume this is the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, CPSO. Yes. And so what was that very first proceeding? Was that a CPSO proceeding or was it actually a, a provincial court of law? No, no, it was a College of Physicians and Surgeons proceeding. It was a College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, request or application to a committee uh, committee called the ICRC committee that that authorizes investigations and the, and the like, uh, and, and uh, they applied for authorization, uh, which has to be based on reasonable and probable grounds, which in the United States, for instance, would be the same thing as probable cause uh, to believe that there has been either misconduct or incompetence, uh, and we've challenged that assertion of reasonable and probable grounds, which is not only the basis for the investigation, but is the basis for their search and seizure powers. Um, so that's what what this is essentially about. 
And so have they prevailed in the search and seizure of your other patient records? Um, Peter, oh, Dr. McCullough, they have not. So um, the process that Paul just explained was that is the process that's followed when an investigation was started. Because the ICRC could not get me to hand over the charge, they really did apply to a court of law, a district court, to compel me to provide them with that charge. And that is the process that started in December of 2021. Mm -hmm. um, throughout this whole process, we kept on saying there's absolutely no way I can do this. So technically, the investigation that was started um, or it's supposed to be continued by the ICRC have not really started even into the two years because we've been fighting in court. And um, Paul can give you a little bit more information. Basically, what happened is some of the patients that I did assist, they formed an intervener patient group and they applied to be added part as part of this court case so that their voices can be heard. And they've been denied every single step of the way in this in this the court court dealings. OK, so now this actually is into the courts yep. of law and yep. um, and Paul. How far has this gotten? Is it is it just in front of a, a judge or a group of judges or, or jury or or not even that far? Okay, well, the ICRC, the College of Physicians and Surgeons Committee, who made the decision about the authorization of the investigation, we uh, Dr. Killian refused to comply with that, and they brought an application before a single judge of the Superior Court of Ontario to seek a, what's called a statutory injunction compelling her to provide the records that she was refusing to provide. Meanwhile, we challenged uh, the authorization in another court called the Divisional Court, which is a court composed of normally three judges, uh, to challenge the uh, authorization of the investigation because the college claimed that the Superior Court judge didn't have jurisdiction. We disputed that, but we, in any case, out of an abundance of caution, the previous lawyer, um, Mr. Galati, uh, uh, brought this judicial review before the Divisional Court. So we had two sets of proceedings. Um, it got rather complicated as to how that all played, mm -hmm. played out, but the bottom line is uh, the Divisional Court uh, refused to deal with the case. They claimed it was premature. And we've appealed that decision to the Ontario Court of Appeal. Meanwhile, it went uh, back uh, eventually after some other appeals uh, to uh, the single judge of the uh, Superior Court uh, for the statutory injunction hearing. Uh, that judge uh, ordered Dr. Killian to produce the records, and we have appealed that uh, to the Court of Appeal as well. Uh, the first case, the Divisional Court case, we had to get leave of the Court of Appeal. So it's not an automatic right of appeal. And the other one, the, the statutory injunction case, uh, we have an automa automatic right of appeal and we've, we've claimed that, we've, we filed that appeal. Uh, both of them are pending. Uh, we mm -hmm. haven't yet perfected the uh, appeal of the statutory injunction case. Uh, the other, uh, the leave to appeal has been perfected, uh, but we're waiting on a decision. Now, have the patients refused to allow their records to be released? Yes. yes. Dr. Michael, they absolutely have refused. Um, 
And what ended up happening, I think you asked me earlier about the whole search and seizure procedure. So I think it's important for people to kind of understand the distinction. Usually when there's an investigation in a physician, there's a patient complaint that it opens up an investigation and the college reaches out to that physician saying there's a complaint, there's probably going to be an investigation, we're going to come into your office and what they usually do is, is take that chart and usually raid the whole office because they're trying mm. to get an an idea of what's going on with, with this. And I have no idea if that's what happens in the state, but that is what happens in Canada, which is a whole different topic. But anyway, in my case, they couldn't even do that because they had one patient's name. That patient didn't complain. But with the whole search and seizure procedure, there's a couple of um, bylaws and things that they would have been able to follow I had if I had a family practice office because they basically come in with their people, take the computers, take everything off and leave. Mm -hmm. I was practicing out of my home and I was doing virtual care. So there was no physical practice that they could get into. So they wouldn't obviously have been able to come into a private residence. And that kind of made the steps a little bit even more difficult for them. But it allowed some of the procedural problems with the whole investigation process during the CPSO's dealings in the last few decades to be highlighted because of this case. I see. And prior to this, did you have any blemishes on your record? Did you ever have investigations for narcotic use or other things no. like this? No, no. Dr. McCullough, I'm, I'm blessed to say, I think with the grace from above that I've been practicing for 18 years and I've mm -hmm. never even had one single complaint from a colleague or a patient. Um, and I think it's important for people to remember as well, when physicians lose their license, for example, like in a sexual assault case, most of the time in Canada, they lose their license for five years, then they can reapply to get their license back. I've been going on temporarily being suspended for two years because of allegations of providing an exemption or not complying that ended up being allegations of incompetence, which there's has been no proof. But no, the answer is no, I've never had any blemish on my name as a physician. Is there any precedent for the CPSO to pursue to this degree? I mean, one just listening to this would say, boy, this is pursuit of something that doesn't appear to have weight, meaning it's, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a prescription for kilograms of narcotics, or mm -hmm. it wasn't a sexual assault or physical abuse, or it wasn't even a patient complaint. Is there any precedent for something like this that's not even a patient complaint? Yes, there, are, there there have been some other recent cases uh, in which uh, there have been no complaints from a patient that have resulted in in college seeking records from a doctor. Uh, some of some of those cases have been litigated. Uh, there haven't been real proper challenges to the search and seizure in those cases, and mm -hmm. so as a result, the college has succeeded to some extent in those cases. There's one other case that I'm also representing the doctor on where we've also challenged the search and seizure, and that's taking a somewhat different but somewhat similar path. And we're we're at the stage where we're, we're we've appealed that to to the court of appeal as well. Um, there's overlap between Dr. Killian's case and the other case, um, but the, it has the college has had some success. And again, the courts have been rather sympathetic to the college's approach. Because of course the college says, "Oh, pandemic, uh, we, we you know you have to bend over backwards to to help us protect the public interest," 
uh, and they they look at it in a simplistic kind of way, and 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 so they support the college. Did the college at any time um, warn doctors or the public regarding any dangers of the vaccines? You know, they rolled out within a few months. All the regulatory authorities put warnings on myocarditis and then blood clots, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Did the college actually warn doctors and patients regarding these? No, absolutely not. In fact, we actually got an email from the college saying that we just need to be aware that there are very limited um, situations where a patient would actually um, be approved for an exemption. And basically the first is if they had an allergic reaction to the vaccine, to the mRNA vaccine, um, or if they had a, um, I think, a myocarditis or something like that reaction to the vaccine. So technically it meant everybody needs to have their first rounds of the mRNA um, biologics, and then we will assess them for either anaphylactic reactions and things like that. So that's kind of the only warning throughout that process that was sent out, not the other way around, for sure. Okay. And no, there, there, there weren't any um, warnings about the dangers of, of the vaccines. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's discussion, obviously, in various public forum, uh, uh, social media, etc., cetera, uh, uh, where that's been discussed. But in terms of official warnings... Did the college, on the other hand, though, did they have official or uh, I think probably the term I'd use is uh, substantial encouragement for physicians themselves to take the vaccine, patients to take the vaccine? Did they make statements? Did they tip their hand or were they neutral on the vaccines? Um, I would say I think any opinion in this regards is always going to be biased because I come come to it with a different perspective. But what I saw with the communication coming through from the colleges and even Health Canada, Ministry of Health, it was absolutely tipped towards one side. And I think that's the part that people need to realize. It's not even about the it wasn't even about the vaccine. My passion as a physician is all about medical ethics. And what it came down to is the medical ethics that includes bodily autonomy, informed consent, even informed refusal. Because we need to remember any product, that patient absolutely deserves the right to make a decision what is best for their body. And that's the one distinction that I want to make with this case is this could have played out very differently if I said, yes, college, take my charts, because I have full confidence in the assessments I did with these people. And we had a discussion on the risks and benefit um, ratios on every single patient that I assessed. And we made a decision together to either give them an exemption or give them other medications and things like that. The point is, if I did say, yes, here's my charts, this probably wouldn't have gone on this long. The reason I took the stand is because it is about the privacy and confidentiality of medical charts. Mm -hmm. And that is what's come out in this court case as well. In fact, it actually came out in the court case that the CPSO's opinion and the courts um, confirmed this is that Canadian citizens have no expectation of privacy when it comes to their medical charts. Mm. And that is the part I think that at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what their intentions. I honestly do think the intentions was to just keep physicians in line with the narrative that was decided Mm -hmm. on. And we are being used as scapegoats. That's the easy analysis of what's going on here. But the end of it is the longer this continues, it's basically playing the cards to say 
Canadian citizens and U.S. now, we're speaking to the U.S. Um, counterpart to know that this is maybe not only in Canada, maybe it is in other places as well, Australia and New Zealand that you mentioned earlier, that are you sure in the public health system that you actually have privacy rights? And if you're not sure, you would better start making sure because this process that we went through the last few years, it might not be the last one we're going through. And if we don't stand on the medical ethic principles, we are in big trouble going forward. Oh, so I see this is uh, this is largely about uh, personal autonomy, uh, certainly in the case of you and, the, and the, those patients, uh, obviously, but also privacy. Paul, are there other elements here? Uh, Health Canada, who's, I, I assume, the uh, OHIP, the Ontario uh, Health Insurance Plan. Are there other kind of secondary users of the charts where, where privacy infringement or data sharing or so, some other aspect of the case comes in? Well, in terms of Health Canada, they don't really have jurisdiction. I mean, this is a provincial matter. They have limited sort of jurisdiction to make sure standards are uniform throughout the, the, the different provinces in Canada and certain uh, uh, um, interests in the, the uniformity of the, the healthcare system that they use in terms of uh, federal spending and transfer payments to the, to the provinces uh, to for health purposes. So they, they don't really apply. In terms of OHIP, um, it, it, for the most part, it doesn't enter into it. But for instance, in the other case that I'm handling, um, uh, she, that doctor has not been suspended, but there are uh, monitoring conditions. Uh, and some of those monitoring conditions include, uh, the, the, uh, keeping a log of present patients being treated and having uh, the college investigators and or compliance monitoring have access to records, including all OHIP records for the doctor, which is a backdoor way of getting the kind of records that yeah. they were trying to get through the front door through OHIP. So in that case, we have the doctor has refused to provide the OHIP records because it is a backdoor way of getting the kind of information that otherwise is being contested. Hmm. Now, is it possible in Canada, uh, Dr. Killian, for a patient to privately engage with a doctor without having OHIP involved or without having CPSO or any other entity involved? Can they just engage in a private relationship? Is that possible? Dr. McCullough, I think that is, at the end of the day, that's the golden question, to be honest, because I do think this whole scenario leads to the next part where Canada is in trouble if we don't have public health and private health. But technically, we have licensed physicians that works under the private health agreement that they bill OHIP and the government pays them and the, the, the mm -hmm. physicians are seen as licensed under that association. My patients that I actually did see, they paid me privately. We did not mm -hmm. bill OHIP. So technically, okay. it was in the private domain, which kind of puts it in either an extra layer on it. We are at this moment, I just recently launched uh, my own private membership association, K Wellness, mm -hmm. because I think we are, we're going to have to get to a point where we fight for solutions, not just fight the problem. But that, that distinction between public health and private health needs to be very certain. In my specific case, even I decided not to bill OHIP, I just charged them basically a fee 
for the assessment or basically the, the note that I provided. Because even in OHIP, when I worked in Merge, if somebody comes in, I want to give them a work note or a letter, I can charge them privately. That's a surplus charge that you ask them. So technically mm -hmm. it fell under, under that, but there was no OHIP record. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. You know, there's a, a PMA that I'm part of, Private Management Association, it's called The Body. And it's out of yeah. Michigan. Avery Jackson is leading that effort. And this idea that, you know, patients can privately engage with a doctor. We're working on all the legalities, all the um, yes. state's attorney generals across the United States have been notified this is this is happening. But, you know, there's other relationships. Uh, Paul, let me ask you, you're an attorney. Uh, if, if someone engages with you in a professional relationship uh, and an outside entity says, some board somewhere says, give me the records, do you give me does the solicitor client records for instance right does does right. is is there is there some something in a professional relationship and this you know this doctor thing i think needs to be expanded to clinical psychologists lawyers physical therapists occupational therapists we, it's 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 about a professional relationship are there are there safe harbors th that can be applied more broadly than just something that the cpso would look at okay well there, at, at present, under Canadian law, Ontario law and Canadian law, uh, there is a distinction between the, the privacy protections or the privilege protections between lawyer and client, as opposed to doctor and patient. The, the former, the uh, solicitor client privilege, is, is uh, considered what they call a class privilege which is a stronger protection. It's a, a pr privilege no matter what, unless you meet certain very limited exceptions. Uh, the, 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 and it's also considered to be a constitutional protection under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, would be the equivalent of uh, due process under the U.S. Bill of Rights. Uh, whereas doctor-patient privilege is not accorded the same protection. There are certain statutory protections as well. There are what they call case by case privilege, not a class privilege, but in certain circumstances, it can be considered privilege. Now there's case law from the courts that have suggested that that case by case privilege should be presumed in the context of uh, doctor patient privacy and confidentiality. Um, but so far, the courts in this case have been ignoring that. Not only that, but uh, there's a provision in relation to the search and seizure issues that arise in Dr. Killian's case, um, uh, Section 76 sub 4 of the Procedural Code, uh, which uh, supposedly says uh, that the, the search and seizure rights of the college uh, trump the privacy and confidentiality rights of the patient. However, uh, uh, notwithstanding the fact that divisional court has uh, said, oh, this trumps the patient's confidentiality rights, the Court of Appeal, in the case that we have been relying on, said otherwise. They said that, in fact, it doesn't trump the confidentiality and privacy rights of the patient. And that's part of why we're seeking leave in the Court of Appeal. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought.
AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Wow, this is getting so, so tangled. It's just infringement of civil liberties all over the place here. It just seems like there's there's no end. You know, as we bring this to a close, what's your, I'm gonna ask both of you, what's your outlook on the concept of fairness? I guess fairness and reasonableness would be two additional st- standards. Dr. Killian, you know, it seems obvious from this interview that you feel like you've been treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. But going forward, at some point in time, are you going to have to rely upon fairness and reasonableness as you navigate this legal morass? Um, absolutely, Dr. McCullough. I think we are unfortunately um, almost dependent on the courts to handle fairly and justly. And we've got no say if that's going to happen or not. I think from my side, I would I would say unfairness, yes, can be can be. Um, subjective as well because somebody can feel like they've been treated with unfairness for me it all comes and maybe I pull it back to the ethics it's basically acting in the truth there is usually Mm -hmm. just one truth (laughs) you're either Mm -hmm. truthful or not 
my standard of care that I've been providing to patients for 18 years have never changed. My guidelines that I followed never changed. The truth remains the truth. If regulatory bodies and governments and overreaching institutions changed their truth, that does not make it the truth. And that is where unfairness and unjustly action can set in. Um, but at the end of the day, I think truth is willing, we're willing to fight till the end for the truth. And um, if we don't this, do this now, why, why would I go back to this profession? Because I'm, I'm not even fighting for my privacy or my confidentiality or my fairness. I'm fighting for the patient's well, rights, well, privacy yeah, and confidentiality. Right, but you're linking truth to an important concept of beneficence. That is, you're yep. doing what's in the best interest of the patient with shared decision-making. Exactly. That that circle, you're doing the best that you possibly can. And, and I don't believe anybody has declared that you haven't. No one's declared that you haven't been acting on the patient's best interest. So, Except the college. <laughs> Except the college. And it's at this well, moment no, allegations. I don't think, it, it doesn't sound like they're even saying that right now, that this is really an exercise of professional reprisal. I mean, they don't, have they expressed any concerns about patients and the patient yep. outcomes? Not the patient outcomes, but basically just keeping me in line so that the patients gets the care that they decide it should be the care that was the narrative. But no, it's not about the, for them, it's not about the patients. It, do, it, uh, it doesn't seem to be. Now, yeah. Paul, so I'll, I'll leave it to you. Uh, 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 fairness and reasonableness as standards, will you need to rely on them? Well, we're trying to rely on them, um, but the the courts uh, don't seem to care too much. Um, there are two essential problems here in terms of fairness and reasonableness. One is, is the constitutional issue and the rule of law issue, and the second is the undermining of patients' rights. Let me deal with the first. Um, here, there are clear problems with the searches, search and seizure that's that's being attempted here. And yet the courts and the college are saying, and, and so far the courts have ruled, uh, that we can't challenge what is clearly an unreasonable search and seizure. We have to comply with it, even though it is unreasonable. And that's contrary to the rule of law. You cannot require that you comply with un unlawful and unconstitutional demands for documents uh, and say we can't litigate it. Uh, it's it's just wrong. And that is what has happened. And not only that, the, the, the college and the courts have said that even if it is wrong, you still have to comply with it uh, and then deal with the consequences later. It's absurd uh, and unfair uh, and and contrary to the rule of law. The other problem is, and, and Dr. Killian made reference to this before, the patient's rights, the the, the the, the, what the college has argued and the court has accepted so far is not that the patients don't have confidentiality rights per se. They say that the patients don't have confidentiality rights vis-a-vis -vis the college. Right. So mm -hmm. when the, anyone else wants to get private records, they can't. But if the college wants it, they can get whatever they want. Uh, and there's no such thing in terms of constitutional protection uh, un under um, Canadian constitutional law under Section 8 of the, the Charter, nor under the Fourth Amendment uh, guarantees against unreasonable search and seizure, to have a reasonable expectation of privacy vis-a-vis -vis person X, as opposed to vis-a-vis -vis some agency of the state. Either you have a reasonable expectation of privacy or you don't. 
And yet they've carved out this exception that is just a fiction in law that undermines the constitutional privacy rights of the patient. And that, again, is unreasonable and unfair. Now, what if what if uh, this was done like uh, I tell you, in American hospitals, we have something called peer review. And what if this was done uh, in that manner where, like, like say at a morbidity mortality conference, that we're going to review a case uh, of something that was a bad outcome. Now, the rules of peer review are that the the patient case is kept anonymous and uh, the, the case is uh, uh, discussed. And well, it's not anonymous within the meeting, but the rules are nothing leaves that meeting. So, so there's no, no breach of that. And it's for internal purposes only. What if CPSO said, turn over the records, it, it's for internal purposes only, and uh, redact all the patient identifiers? Well, the college would still have the information and the patient's privacy would still be violated. Um, uh, and uh, and again, here we're talking about an investigatory stage. So if they think that patient A and patient B have relevant evidence uh, about misconduct by the doctor, uh, then there's they're going to be subpoenaed as a witness. They're going to testify at a public hearing. There might be some publication bans limiting the adverse impact on that person, but it's still violating their privacy. And again, that's okay. If it's lawful, if there are, in fact is reasonable and probable grounds or probable cause, but where there isn't, it shouldn't, it's a non-starter. It shouldn't get off the, the ground. And that's what we have here. But but have they asked for uh, uh, de-identified records? Yes. No, they, no, no. They want the records without all the identifiers. Oh, okay. So, yep. so that's and that's where I'm. That's a different story, Dr. McCullough. Unfortunately, the patient's lawyer what wanted to be here tonight. She wasn't able. But that's basically one of the agreements they came to say, we're willing, at least the intervener patients, not my bigger patient group. They said, well, we'll hand over the charts because we were happy with this physician's service. We had no issues with her, but mm -hmm. at least redact our personal information. The college did not want that. Wow. So this is getting pretty interesting. So chances are this is going to have some legs to it because you have CPSO, you have the doctor, and you have the patient served. And so, and of course, now you have the, the, the you know, the legal uh, teams. Uh, okay. So this is, um, this has obviously been a very big turn in your career. Uh, and like so many doctors have witnessed across Europe and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States, there are doctors in yep. the United States where professional reprisal, um, which is what this is. This is, a, this is an attempt to injure you professionally. It's, it's really what it's all about. It's, it's not a, doesn't sound like it's a breach of standard of care. No one was harmed. Um, that uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's purely professional reprisal. Uh, is underway, uh, but you must be paying attention to broader forms of reprisal that's happening in the media. You know, we had our number one uh, media host at night, Tucker Carlson, the subject yep. of professional reprisal, Joe Rogan, when I went on with him, and the list goes on and on. Uh, we yep. have seen uh, professional reprisal among politicians and uh, I don't know if you saw, I think it was today or yesterday, 
former President Trump was indicted and uh, and now it's at the level of what was he thinking on on a certain topic uh, and that's the, the the topic of his um of his most recent indictment what I'm, I'm not getting sure that's to reprisal. yeah well, yeah what yeah, reprisal. That's, that's what, what I'm getting to is there seems to be a freefall a complete wholesale um, abrogation of the principles of fairness and reasonableness. It, it seems as if now there's been a weaponization of the institutions versus the individuals and institutions of Absolutely. all type. Institu- it's institution versus um, versus individual. And what you are testing is what is the strength of the individual? What are What's the potential recourse of, yep. of an individual? And, and where do you know, where do attorneys come in and really can can win on civil liberties? So let me just finish by asking, Paul, do you have any final comments for our audience? Uh, I think you've done a really nice job laying out these issues. I think lawyers will want to watch this as much as doctors um, <laughs> and, and, of course, the general audience. But what are your final words? I guess only to say that that it, it in this case, uh, it, it, it is purported application of standards as opposed to, it's not expressly reprisal. Um, but those standards are standards of policy that are arbitrarily set by private medical associations. And in fact, the law requires that that standards be known in advance. If you're gonna be punished for not following the rules, you have to know what the rules are in advance. And you can't say so that some vague policy of a medical association are the governmentally imposed standards and rules. And yet that's what's happening here uh, okay. with no opportunity for input. Uh, and 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 there are aspects beyond that that are also reprisal because Dr. Killian was also being investigated, is also being investigated for public statements and her expression. Um, and uh, it's in some ways similar to to what the the disciplinary body is uh, we're trying to do with Jordan Peterson uh, in terms of his expression. Uh, and we've taken the position that they have no jurisdiction to be dealing with this unless the expression has to do with uh, the actual medical care being provided. And here it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we've been given short shrift by the courts on that issue so far. Now, let me just um, uh, ask you, uh, Dr. Killian, was was your expression of anything public, was it before or after uh, the first CPO action? Um, it was before I was aware of the investigation, for sure. And the once again, the allegation was there. There's a certain label that's thrown around and has been thrown around in the last year and a half is that I was an anti-vax speaker at certain rallies. Um and I think I'm smart enough to know you use certain verbiage in crowds, but that was never the case. Basically, what I spoke about was the fact that people had no choice. It was about vaccine mandates, which is a mm-hmm. very specific topic concerning the fact that you are overstepping medical ethics when you do step into vaccine mandates. And it was in protection of um, children when it came to the vaccine. So if that is the allegation that I, that I spoke about the, um, the fact that there should be no reason to give a experimental biologic to a two-year-old, then that would fall under what they are saying is constituting either incompetence 
or putting my patients in danger where I would agree that it's probably the other way around. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that brings it back to you, Paul. Uh, you know, it seems like this just opens up more and more. So, so the, the first thing is uh, this idea of, in a sense, going ex post facto. They didn't lay out what the rules were to begin with in the pandemic. They didn't lay out that if you wrote an exemption or you gave a presentation at a rally that that you're going to be, uh, you know, delicensed or suspended. Yeah. And then it also brings up the issue of equal protections, M meaning is every single doctor in Canada who wrote an exemption, are they suspended right now, Paul? I, I haven't done the statistical analysis, but uh, um, I would imagine not. Uh, I, I don't know if every doctor who has issued a suspension uh, is necessarily known by the regulatory agencies. Uh, so I can't imagine every doctor has been suspended. And not every doctor who has issued an exemption necessarily would be suspended. Dr. Killian was suspended because she supposedly violated a practice restriction. Uh, although the college knows that she didn't. The mm -hmm. college knows that this was a computer error by someone else. Uh, and that was communicated to the college uh, and they they didn't do anything about it. She, they just maintained her, her suspension, even though she didn't violate the practice restriction. So the, the first go to uh, by the regulatory agency isn't suspension. It's practice restriction. And then if you violate the practice restriction, then it's suspension. That's yeah, the and, general and, approach. And isn't it because you're delivering valuable medical care, isn't there an expectation of promptness? This can't drag out for years. This is something you could have a discussion on in an afternoon and yeah. sort out a difference of, of opinions and just basically, well, you know, close the record. Well, yeah. legal proceedings don't tend to work so expeditiously, <laughs> at least yeah. not in not in Canada or in, in Ontario, generally speaking. Even if it's criminal where you have, as in the United States, a right to a speedy trial, uh, in, in civil or regulatory proceedings, uh, it, it uh, although they want to deal with it quickly the way that the courts work it doesn't work out that way and especially whereas as it has happened here uh the college uh throws everything at at the wall in one way or the other procedurally and hope that something sticks uh and so uh you know i i've been representing dr killian pro bono uh and mm -hmm. uh you know they are pushing us to to bring proceeding after proceeding after proceeding or respond to proceeding after proceeding, knowing that uh, how draining it is on our time mm -hmm. and financial resources and Dr. Killian, who's who's proceeding without the ability to practice. Uh, it's it's unfair in that respect as well. So they're trying to wear you down. But is in a, in a sense, has CPSO achieved their goal? of injuring you and taking you out of the physician workforce? Are they acting like, in a sense, they've already won, Dr. Killian? Um, I don't think so, because I, I kind of get the idea that we're kind of stuck in this legal battle, and they thought it was going to be over. They're going to go to the court, compel me to give me the charts, and then we'll be out of it. So I do think it's been dragging on longer. I do think in the bigger picture, they have been winning, not personally in my case, we're at the financial point that we had to sell our house to make ends meet. So in that regards, yes, maybe they won. But I want to mention something very specifically, and it kind of touches base with the question you asked, Paul. When I assess these patients for ivermectin or exemptions, I can I can't even count on my hand 
the numerous patients that came to me to say, I reached out, I had a discussion with my family physician, my family physician that knows about my antiphospholipid syndrome, about my autoimmune disease, about the list of things. I've got five pages of the people that I saw with issues and the family physician that's known them for years basically told them, I would love to give you this exemption, but I'm not willing to risk my medical license to do that. So at the end of the day, that is where the college did win because physicians were not brave enough to step up mm. in their medical ethics and their standard of care that they were providing because of fear of what you mentioned earlier, reprisal on your, mm-hmm. uh, on your reputation as a physician. And, and maybe they're winning in the sense of making an example out of you. Exactly. exactly. In order to, to really achieve the goal of having physicians in line. But, you know, like you, I issued medical exemptions. And if I thought this vaccine was going to result in injury, disability, and death, and yeah. it's not hard to clinically evaluate a patient no. and see a patient who has who had near-fatal pulmonary embolism, if they have another one, they're going to die. A patient with exactly. mechanical heart valve, if it gets thrombosed, it'll be fatal. Uh, it's not hard to do this. People with uh, already uh, anaphylactoid, anaphylactic reactions where, where it could be fatal. Uh, we know in the United States, just Americans, it's about 17,500 Americans uh, have died after the vaccine that the CDC knows about. It's been reported in their system. Wow. We estimate uh, the underreporting factor in FDA testimony is 30. So that puts that number at 550,000 Americans have died of, after a vaccine. Now the CDC knows about 1,100 cases that die in the vaccine center or in the next few hours, 1,100, uh, 5, 10, you know, 50, it should be off the market. No, you know, no, no doctor ethically, I think, could, could really look at this and support at least half exactly. a million Americans dying. That's more than Civil War casualties. So we're in a situation of, that's unprecedented. I think both of you are Canadian heroes. You're heroes uh, for the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be a battle, and it's all pro bono at this stage. This is what it is, and everyone now is working for the bigger, you know, the bigger picture of civil liberties and and this cloud of authoritarian, basically groupthink. And there's no doubt about it. The, the CPSO is authoritarian. They are saying, "Give over the records. We don't care about any patient rights." And you're 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 in a sense you're battling off the ropes uh, across <laughs> these courts. So I give you great credit, Mr. Paul Slansky has joined us as an, a courageous attorney in Canada, and uh, Dr. Rujan Killian 